from this side of the room and just see faces and say welcome and good morning. Uh, it is always a gift and a blessing and a privilege to get to gather and worship uh, with other people, with fellow brothers and sisters. And, you know, I, I'm excited and, yeah, hopeful of what God might do through his word this morning. And obviously every time we open his word, we believe that he speaks through it, that his spirit works in it. And particularly uh, as we started, and I'll mention this kind of stretch in our Roman series last week, particularly these three weeks that we're covering are just so foundational for us to have the gospel drive deep into our hearts and our minds. And so I just want to pray that this morning as we start, and then we will read this passage in a moment. Uh, Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to, to sit and really do something unique, to gather, uh, to listen to your word be proclaimed and preached. And Father, we believe the power is not in the person speaking, but we believe the power is in the one who has written the word and whose spirit is at work. And God, we ask that you would move. We ask that you would show us who you are, that we would catch a glimpse of your beauty and your glory and of the goodness of what Jesus has done on our behalf. That any part of us that feels numb to that or cold to that or indifferent to that, God, I pray that you would do your work to soften and to warm and to help us come alive to you. And so I pray and I ask that in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we we are in this series in Romans called A Faith You Can't Explain. And the hope this morning as we address a topic of why did Jesus have to die is that obviously personally this would drive home for us, but also I hope that there might be something helpful for you as you think about explaining our faith, our very unique faith to people that might be skeptical or indifferent Uh, or even maybe aggressively against it. And and before doing that, uh, I want to just read our passage this morning. We're in the section now of Romans, Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. So if you want to look up on the screen or listen to me, starting in verse 21, I'm reading from the NIV this morning. It says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Perfect. As we we think about those words... Uh, I want to set up our time together, maybe in this way first. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever received a phone call that you weren't expecting, received news maybe that you weren't expecting. This kind of hit personal and home to us in the last couple of weeks to months as, you know, Claire and I are uh, relatively young and have been healthy and have had no real health issues and 
Uh, Claire's on new insurance with the new job she has, and so just doing a normal uh, annual checkup with a new physician. And she did all the work, everything looked good, and, and then the doctor actually called a few days later and said, hey, Claire, everything looked good except there was something here with your, your liver numbers that is kind of concerning. And we're going to actually have to send you to a specialist to get further testing. And uh, I remember she was out of town, and uh, I was taking care of the boys, and I just got that call, and, and I think was just, obviously, I'm not an anxious person. I don't really worry that quickly, but you kind of begin to think, like, oh, oh, no, what does that mean? What, is, what does this mean for us and our family? Is something going to happen? Is, you know, all this, and of course, she's feeling that herself on this business trip, trying to hold it together. And, and you know, she ended up going to a specialist, and numbers, numbers were run, and eventually we, we, we actually got a positive call, which was, hey, everything looks good. You, you seem healthy in every area. I want to monitor this, but we're good for now. Let's check in in a year from now. And, you know, some of you may have been on receiving ends of news or phone calls like that. Right, where you walk into a doctor's office or a loved one has walked into a doctor's office and you thought a normal checkup and you actually got news that was not only unexpected but really crushing and really devastating. And on the flip side of that too, I have this image, you know, I'm from Houston originally and so I think about MD Anderson and I have this image of, I don't know, if, again, just you personally, if you walked with anybody who's walked through cancer before, but the, the image of somebody when they're cancer free finally and they ring that bell. It's like such a beautiful image as somebody who has fought this battle is now ringing this bell signifying that the bad news that they received Now there is joy in life as cancer has been diagnosed no longer in their system or dormant. And and I offer that this story this morning first, maybe to connect with some of you. And and like I said, in different places, you can connect in some form of fashion there. But we've been walking in Romans in a way, and in the first, really from 118 through 320, so right before our section here, Paul has been driving at really bad news a really serious diagnosis of all humans, that all humans stand before God in sin and therefore in judgment from a God that is holy and righteous and perfect. And and we're going to talk a little bit about this idea of God's wrath this morning. And I know that that can make some of us uncomfortable, but I want us to unpack a little bit maybe why God's wrath and his justice is such a good thing. But that news first has to be received. That diagnosis has to be accepted if the gospel is actually going to be something that is beautiful to you. That if it's going to bring life and light into your life, you first have to agree with the diagnosis. That we can't navigate through this series and navigate through the scriptures and think that that sin problem is elsewhere in somebody else's problem. Or as I said, the gospel and what Jesus has done will not be beautiful to you. And so Paul has done this work. And like I said, from 118 to 320, it's actually 64 verses of pretty much bad news. And then in 21, it turns. There's 11 verses. And he's going to work it out through chapters 4 through 8. But in these 11 verses, it's this compact, concise, good news. What is the gospel? And what I love in verse 21, I don't know if you just caught it in our reading, but it's these words. you you got to put yourself in this place. Bad news, bad news, bad news. And then verse 21 says, but now. 
And again, you, you're just walking in here this morning, but for me, as I've sat with this text a little bit, just those words, but now for me, have spoken a lot. Because it, it's, this, it's this proclamation that there was bad news, it's real grim, but something has happened. And, and what I thought about for me, and what I thought about, honestly, for some of you in this room, is that for some of our situations in life, for some of our relationships that have looked grim, for some of the things that we've been walking through that has been really hard, maybe for some of the ways that we've given in to just our cynicism and have become, like I said, cold and indifferent, it is this proclamation this morning of, but now. That God breathes life and he moves towards sinners and that he offers something good that actually is supposed to propel and give life and change everything. And so maybe in some ways, if you don't catch the rest of the sermon, if you would grab belief and take hold of that charge that God has moved, that he has acted, that there is hope for you in your situation and where you find yourself. And as I said, Charlie started last week, but in this little 11 verse from verses 21 through 31, Paul really concisely is is honing in on what is this good news? What is this but now that has happened? And Charlie talked last week about grace. And and really, you can boil down these three things, I mean, the the verses, uh, the the 11 verses here in chapter 3 to just these three phrases. It's grace alone, because of Christ alone, through faith alone. And we are going to cover each of those. Charlie last week talked about grace, this free gift offered to receive. This week we're going to actually talk about why we can receive this free gift. What has been done so that we might receive something that actually changes everything. And then next week we're going to talk about faith. What does it mean to have faith? We're going to unpack a lot of that because that is obviously important as well. You can think about grace, you can hear the news of Jesus, but if you haven't received it by grace, I mean, if you haven't received it by faith, then it does not change your life. And so this morning, it's that because of Jesus part. And, and it's partly why I wanted to pray, because some of us have maybe grown up in the church and have maybe been a follower of Jesus for a long time, and we can begin to, to just hear that story over and over again and lose the power of it. And so I hope for you this morning that you might not... Uh, lose that wonder and amazement at what Christ has done, but also that you might be able to help somebody who is on their journey figuring out uh, their life as well. And, And particularly this morning, I want to explore two questions. And the first one is kind of this big overarching question, again, maybe more from someone that might come to the faith skeptically or just wonder, if God is all powerful, if he is the maker of everyone and everything, why could God not just simply forgive? That as we hear this prognosis of sin and the problems, couldn't God just wipe the slate clean and say, it's all good? I don't know if you've ever wondered that. I don't know if you've ever heard that question. It's simply driving deeper at the question, essentially, of why did Jesus have to die? And why on a cross? And, and furthermore, if you've, again, spent any time or you're, you yourself have wondered that the gospel for some people actually skeptically might even hear the news of Jesus dying, the Son of God, and say, is that not some form of divine child abuse? That the Son would have to be punished by the Father in order to make right those who have been wrong? And so I, I want to first address that question And that will lead us to our second question this morning. 
So why God couldn't just forgive? And I think it might be helpful first, like uh, I thought about this again this week as an illustration. Um, Claire and I, when we lived in Albany, a small town, and whenever we needed to kind of get a shot of life and experience the big city, we'd go to Fort Worth. And so we took the church suburban. I was working at a church. We took the church suburban. We were actually running some errands for the church, and we're going into Fort Worth. And I don't remember this loop. Some of you that maybe went to TCU or have lived in Fort Worth, there is this weird loop in Fort Worth that we found ourselves in, like a bunch of this little highway scooting around, a few different exits and entry points and lights. And so we sat at this light, this red light, and waited, and it turned green. And so we started to go, and then somebody exiting off the freeway, you know, opposite of us, just totally hit us from the side. Super unexpected, obviously. And it was scary. For anybody that's been in a wreck before, obviously, you're, you're not concerned so much about anything, but are we okay, and is that person okay? And so we get out of the car, and, and I go to check and make sure that person's okay, because it was a pretty high-speed little collision there from them, and as we just started going. And, and she seemed out of it a little bit. She said she's okay, and then she just apologized right away, like, I'm so sorry for what just happened. And I was like, do not worry about that. That's not what we need to worry about right now. And, and what was interesting, though, is as time went on and the officer showed up and things happened, you know, she'd already kind of admitted her fault and said, sorry, I said, don't worry about it, we'll figure it out. What I began to find out later was that she actually began to tell a different story of what happened than with what we thought had happened, which was we sat at the light, it turned green, and then we went. And we found ourselves in this situation where it was our word against their word. There was nobody that saw the accident. And it was kind of wild to find out in that process that there's just nothing that can be done about that. And so I remember, obviously this was after the fact when we are finding this out. And, and uh, we actually got deposed in the situation. That she was claiming not only was it not her fault, but it was our fault. And I remember when I received that news that she was actually saying it was our fault that caused it. That this like kind of... Uh, frustration rose up against, in, inside of me. Like, this is not right. And, you know, Claire and I, I, I remember almost like telling the story again. I'm kind of getting there a little bit. Like, it was just wrong. And I don't know if you've ever felt that way. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that before. But I start there as we answer this question, why God couldn't just forgive? Because the reality is, is a simple, a something simple as a car accident that when there is uh, something that has been done, when there is a, a wrong that has been done, there is a price that is paid for that wrong. That there is a cause and effect. That even for us to, to bear the responsibility of what happened against us, we obviously had a dent in our car and we had to move on with that. But there was a, a reality of what happened there and somebody bears the cost of that. And even though we didn't feel like we did anything wrong, we, we bore that cost in that situation, fixing that car. I'll drive it further. Claire and I were watching, uh, I guess maybe this shows that we're really lame on a Friday night, but the kids are down and we're watching like Dateline or 2020. I don't know if anybody likes that show. We're, we're maybe strange in that way too, but there, were, there was this Dateline, this 2020 episode, and, and really it was, a, it was a very tragic story uh, of this young girl, high school student who was on spring break in, in Myrtle Beach a long time ago, and uh, one night she disappeared. And she had gotten lost from her friends, and she's walking back by herself, and she gets picked up in the car, and she thinks that the person is going to take her back to her hotel room, and she never made it to her hotel room. And that for years, the parents, and nobody knew what had happened. She had just disappeared. 
And then through a lot of investigative work, what they realized and figured out was that they realized this man had picked her up and what he had done to her and what had happened. And he eventually talked and showed where her body was. And I felt this feeling again that that is so wrong. Furthermore, this person who was responsible for this had actually been sentenced for similar crimes to a 40-year sentence, but he was let off 20 years early. And, and furthermore, there's this sense of not only was it wrong, but it shouldn't have happened because he still should have been praying the pot, praying the pot, paying the price of his original wrong. This, this aspect, whether you are an atheist or agnostic, a Christian or whatever, there is this sense when we hear stories, when we've experienced stories such as that, and we know that it is wrong and that there must be justice that there must be payment for a, a wrong such as that. that. That is something the human heart relates to across different religions and worldviews. It's, it's actually a place where I would say, as Christians, you can press into those human realities as you begin to have and explore conversations with people who might be in another place spiritually. This sense of justice and right and wrong and that there needs to be payment for something that has been done wrong. There's a woman who I, I, has a great book on essentially why did Jesus die? And she says this about God. And this is where we will turn and start connecting it to as we think about God, the creator of everyone and everything. It says, she said, God is not bad tempered, but there is a great deal in the world that God cannot countenance. If we think that God should just forgive the monstrous, painful injustices of the world, that is probably because we have not ourselves suffered much from them. But when we hear of children abused or gunmen opening fire on innocent crowds or dictators who care only for their wealth, for their wealth and power and not at all for the well-being of the people they rule, we may have some inkling of the wrath of God. We human beings demand justice and an accounting. We do not accept that this is just the way of the world and it must be endured. The God of the Bible is a God of justice because without justice, there is no hope. You see, as we think first about this, this grand view of, of why God couldn't simply forgive, it's because God in being holy and righteous and just, and the same feelings that we sense that God's wrath is actually the, the just judgment on those sins, on the wrongs that have been committed. And, and you furthermore, I, I didn't mention this in my story about the car wreck in Fort Worth, but it's a church car, like I said, and part of the situation that made this complicated in the moment was I had found out in that car wreck when the officer ran my license that my license had been temporarily suspended for an unpaid ticket. But don't worry, that's 10 years ago. I'm far more responsible now. <laughs> and it was this like weird dynamic where I know that she had just ran into us, that we went on a green light, she went on a red. It's her fault. But now I'm also a little bit responsible here as I have a suspended license and I don't really want to try to press for justice in this situation because justice might mean actually that something happens to me. And, and it, it was this interesting situation and dynamic and 
in many ways, it, it makes me think about what David said when he sinned, and he obviously committed sins against Bathsheba and Uriah and a host of people, but he said, God, against you and against you alone have I sinned. You see, he understood something that I felt a little bit in that situation, that although I felt that person had wronged me, I actually had a part to play in the whole situation, the dynamic. That as we just take a step back and think about wrongs that have been committed against one another and, and maybe us personally, that you got to think about God in heaven who made each person in his image. That when wrongs are done against one another, obviously there's a, there's a situation and a wrong done there, but the God who made everyone, that he is wronged in that as well, that he is grieved by what he sees happening with his image bearers. And so even in these moments, it's why Charlie has talked about it and will continue to hit, but, you know, the gospel humbles us because it's not a, a pointing finger type game. Even in situations where we've been wrong, we recognize the reality of sin in our hearts, in our minds, in our emotions, in our behaviors. But so justice demands that God would act and that he would make right what's been wronged. But it's not just this sense of, you know, if God is going to be consistent, if he's going to be just, uh, it has to be righted. I also just think that if God didn't judge, if he didn't have wrath towards evil and sin, that he actually wouldn't be worth worshiping. He would not be worth following and giving our life to. Some of you may know and have heard of the name Miroslav Volf. He's, maybe you haven't, but... Uh, he is a Croatian theologian, and this is precisely the point that he comes to as he's wrestling with this dynamic of wrath and sin and God's judgment. And this is what he says in, in saying that God is not worth being worshipped if he doesn't pay back wrong. He says this, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with many people in the West he actually makes a stronger critique and says that this idea of a God who can just love and forgive is something easily to be thought of, thought of in our suburban context. But he says this thought uh, might not sit well with those in the West, but he says, imagine for a moment speaking with people as I have, whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned, then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have been killed. Your point to them as you speak is this, we should not retaliate. Why not? What will ever keep them from retaliating? The only means of preventing violence is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence is nourished today by the secret belief that God refuses to take the sword. In a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence. God would not be worthy of our worship. I, I hope maybe some of that resonates with you, this idea that if God is a God to be worshipped, if God is, you know, even as a Christian calling to, to lay down arms, to not be violent, the reality is we believe that God one day will make all things right. It's why in every moment we don't have to fight for our right. But it, it falls on its head if we worship a God who will not make payment on wrong, if he will not judge rightly. And so God's just judgment on evil and sin is actually not in conflict with his love. It is precisely his love that demands justice. 
See, God is love, and he must utterly reject and ultimately deal with all that pollutes, distorts, and destroys his world and his image-bearing creatures. I just want us to get that. That for God to be a God of love, that means that he, he has to judge and deal with all that is counter to good, all that is evil and pollutes his image bearers in the world that he has made. And so I, I want to flip that question a little bit now to, to not so much ask why God might not simply just be able to say, hey, I forgive, it's all good. But I actually want to ask the question of how can God judge sin and evil in a way that does not compromise his justice? God said, as we've dealt with in this passage, that the, the wages of sin is death. So if the wages for sin is death, and if we have fallen under sin, how can God remain just and holy and righteous and yet deal with that problem, that reality for us in a way that is consistent? And, and furthermore, as we've talked about, this idea of, of sin is not something that runs out there, but it actually runs through every human heart. So how, God, how can God judge evil and sin in a way that doesn't eradicate humans? And this, again, is where we get to the beauty of the gospel. It's where we get to the beauty of and really the, the amazingness of the Christian message. You might have heard it in the text this morning. We talk about, uh, you, you read atonement. It's a big word. The ESV actually says propitiation, an even bigger word. And before kind of unpacking that a little more, that, that word in the Greek Old Testament, what's called the Septuagint, uh, it's the same word. And where we primarily get that word atonement and propitiation is really played out in the book of Levit Leviticus, everybody's favorite book in the Bible. And we begin to see this storyline in Scripture from the very beginning pages, this idea of sin having to be atoned for. And what we see in Leviticus, and it's really important for us to remember this because we flip this not only in the Old Testament, but in our understanding of God and the way he relates to us, is that in the Old Testament and where we are in Leviticus, God had first saved his people out of uh, slavery in Egypt. That he had saved them and pulled them out. Right? And now they are moving in. They've gone through these waters. They're moving into the promised land. And it's into that place that God desires to dwell with his people. But his people are sinners. And what Leviticus is and what all those rules and what all these sacrifices are, what it boils down to actually is a means of grace from God. That God wanted to be with his people, but because of his holiness and justice, there had to be a payment for sin. There had to be a way for them to relate, and he knew that they couldn't pay it themselves. And so what you begin to see and where we get this word atonement really comes down in, in sinners in Leviticus to the Day of Atonement. It was this once-a-year annual day where, you know, they had done sacrifices throughout the year for all different kinds of things, but the Day of Atonement was the day where the priest would actually enter into the Holy of Holies, and there would be a, there would be a goat, uh, actually a bull that was shed for him and his sin, and there would be a goat that had been shed, and he would put the blood on what's called the mercy seat. And that's this word, atonement. The blood was put on that, representing God forgiving the sins of his people. But then there was this other goat. It was a scapegoat. And it was this, it was this what, what the priest would do is he would take this goat, and he would essentially kind of pray in a way where it was like all the sins of the people would be put on this goat. And then they would let that goat go into the wilderness. 
And, and it was this image that their sins had to be placed. There was payment for wrongs. But that God was showing them that a way was going to be made where that was going to be, be done finally and permanently. And it, and it just gave them this image of their sins are on this goat. Now the goat's wandering that they are forgiven and renewed. And they did it annually over and over and over again. And it's precisely why when Jesus comes onto the scene, what is proclaimed of him is, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. You see, John didn't miss the significance of what Jesus was coming to do because he was a man of scriptures. He knew that God had always had this plan set in motion. And obviously a famous passage, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Or how about this one? God made him to be sin who knew no sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the idea of, of this big word atonement, right? That we don't do sacrifices and we don't do these sorts of things that were done in the Old Testament because they were never going to last. It was always to point to the lamb who was coming, Jesus, who shed his blood, and it was a permanent shedding. And it is this, this wild switch of you know, justification, I like this definition from Emil Brunner. He says, justification means this miracle. Christ takes our place and we take his. Christ takes our place and we take his. I want to read this and we'll, we'll head towards a close. But Hebrews 9.11, Hebrews is a, a tough book, but really a wonderful book of making sense of so much of what we read in the Old Testament. And here is a beautiful example. Roman, I mean, Hebrews 9 verses 11 through 15 says this. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. This is where the gospel shines. That as we think about the judgment, the wrath of God, for him to be holy and righteous, there does have to be a penalty for sin. We don't like hearing that. The world doesn't like hearing that. But there is no greater story of love in the heart of the Christian gospel. That yes, God judged sin, but he did it actually himself. That he paid the penalty for us. It is a, a unbelievable reversal of roles that that resonates with people. It's why it's actually in so many books and movies made in Hollywood or wherever else. This idea of someone sacrificing their life for somebody else is, is a message that the, the human heart loves to hear. There's, there's a lot of different examples of that. I'm sure some of your favorite movies, but, you know, I, I just made me think about Narnia a little bit this week. And, and 
if you don't know Mar- Narnia, it's a great book worth reading. Maybe it's because with our little ones, it's something to, to come back to now because C.S. Lewis does a great job just with imagery and story to tell really the message of the gospel. And if you just recall in that world, as, as you know, it's these siblings who find this magical world called Narnia, but it's always winter. But as they wander through this land, it, it begins, the, the snow is melting and things are changing. And they begin to hear whispers, and what they hear is, Aslan is on the move. It, it, the wicked witch is the one who had been kind of taking over and why it was always winter, but Aslan, this lion, is on the move. And it's like this good news that begins to spread across the land. And yet in that, one of the siblings actually commits a grievous wrong and, and kind of sides with the witch. He, he's lured in by at first this little candy, but then believing the voice of the witch and what she's doing and all this stuff, he, he just slowly finds himself on this side, and yet there, there was a rule in Narnia that for treachery there would have to be death. And so towards the end of this, the story in the movie, of, it's a beautiful image actually where Aslan and the witch are kind of back talking about the situation and what's going to happen. And they come out to the people of Narnia and they say, Edmund is not going to have to pay. And everybody cheers. But Aslan looks real just somber. Because as you, if you've seen the movie, what ends up happening is he gets tied to this table. And Aslan says, I will go in his place. That, that he's killed. And you've got to think about for some of these people as they look at Aslan and see that winter is finally ending, that he's on the move and now he's dead. And again, it's this beautiful image in this picture of the story of the gospel. And obviously it's not the end of the story as we know the resurrection that Jesus who was perfect paid that penalty and because he was perfect actually rose from the dead and defeated sin and death once and for all. And so as we move to the Lord's table this morning, you know, I was thinking as we're singing that sometimes we sing and we lift our hands, sometimes we just sit and we listen to lyrics, sometimes our mind is elsewhere, but I just, I felt this, this beautiful reminder that as you think about a God who is willing to die for his people, that as you think about Jesus being hung on a cross for your sin and for my sin, as we sing these songs and we lift our hands, what it's offering and the invitation is to, to truly surrender ourselves to him, that we can trust and we can surrender to a savior who was sacrificed for us that he is worthy of being followed and trusted and led no matter where you find yourself. Let's pray this morning as we head to the communion table. Father, we are grateful that each week as we gather, we end every week at this table. God, that as people who need to touch and smell and sense and see things, sometimes even, maybe even this morning, as we just hear words maybe we've heard before, we need to be reminded of the visual representation of what you've done for us. That he who knew no sin became sin in order that we might be righteous. Not partly, not not just a little bit forgiven, all the way down. 
that as Jesus bore the weight of sin's humanity, the wrath of God on the Son of God, that the price was fully paid. And what that means is no matter the, the grievous wrongs we've committed, there is forgiveness and there is grace because you love us and because of what Jesus has done. We can be sure of it, we can rest in it, we can find life in it, and it is a message that needs to be proclaimed. We need to be the people like in Narnia that walk around and say, Aslan is on the move. But Father, to, to whisper those things to friends and neighbors and coworkers, we first have to, to believe it and see it in our lives. So I do pray this morning, God, in the places that that winter has taken over, that maybe we believe the stronghold of sin on our lives. There is hope, but now. God, I ask that that would ring true for us. I ask even if just one person this morning who's just become cynical and and just doesn't find it hard to believe, God, that you really love them, that you've really forgiven them, that it really changes everything, I pray in this moment they would sense that. Help us to not play games. Help us to not just do church and do religion. Help us to be people that are moved by the love of God. To be grateful for the blood of Jesus that was shed once and for all. It is permanent and perfect. And God, we need it and we thank you for it. So as we come to the table this morning, would you remind us through the senses? Holy Spirit, would you be with us, I pray. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples.